0: Mark chapter 3, we're doing uh, verses 20 through 30 this morning, we're going to get back to uh, 20 and 21 next week. Uh, The structure of this particular last section here is interesting and we'll explain more of that next week, but nonetheless. Then he went home. And the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan... then indeed he may plunder his house truly i say to you all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter and whoever blasphemes against the holy but rather whoever blasphemes against the holy spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin for they were saying he has an unclean spirit Father, this morning I'm reminded of Spurgeon climbing into the pulpit saying, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Uh, Father, in my weakness, uh, may your word go forth powerfully. Uh, May it go forth and bring uh, conviction and comfort to people according to their need. Uh, Father, uh, may you break the hard, prideful heart and may you comfort Uh, the broken, mourning heart. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, As a teenager in the 80s, uh, I watched a fair amount of John Carpenter movies. He made a lot of really what were actually B-movies that explored the various fears that people had. Some of them were actually successful movies, uh, at least in terms of uh, how much money they brought in. Halloween, for instance, I'm sure you're familiar with that movie. Um, Escape from New York resurrected the career of Kurt Russell, for instance, and we had talked about that recently in some context somewhere. But one of them is the cult classic, which was not quite as popular, They Live, kind of an odd title for a movie, and maybe that's why it didn't do incredibly well. It could have been the really lousy soundtrack that John Carpenter put together for it, I'm not really sure. Uh, but what happens is that uh, it takes place in the 80s, the time of, uh, in the movie anyway, of economic downturn, and the main character is a man who's going from city to city, trying to find work, and there's something about this church that he sees uh, on the in this community that strikes him as odd, the people kind of coming in and coming out, and he wants to investigate. And what he finds is an interesting pair of sunglasses, and I had meant to bring my own sunglasses today and forgot to bring them. But nonetheless, uh, he has these sunglasses, and at first he's um, put aback a little bit because they color everything that he sees, and everything seems a little different, and he takes them on and he puts them off, and then he realizes when he looks at people that something is incredibly wrong. And these glasses enable him, these glasses which he got from that church uh, without their knowledge, these glasses enable him to see uh, that some people are in fact aliens. And that there are subliminal messages everywhere that tell him things like obey authority, stay asleep, consume, buy, watch TV. Life has changed forever because he now realizes there is more going on than he ever imagined could possibly be going on. Why am I talking about some silly 1980s campy movie with Roddy Rowdy Piper, a wrestler, as the star? Because I think it's similar to what we see right here in this text. There is far more going on than anyone realizes who's going, who is in this scene in Mark's gospel. Jesus is really the only one who knows exactly what's going on. There are spiritual realities that everyone else is blinded to, but still affect what is happening in these events? We're going to look at it in three ways. First, we're going to look at the accusations against Jesus, then we're going to look at Jesus' response to those accusations, and finally, Jesus' promise and warning. There are two aspects to that. So let's start with the accusations against Jesus in verses 22 and sorry, 20 to 22. I have a typo. There was more going on that I couldn't see on my computer. But uh, this of course is, is right after Jesus returns from the mountaintop. We looked at that last week. He had gone to the top of the mountain. He had met with his disciples and he had chosen 12 of them to become apostles. And so this is sort of a high moment in the the life of this body of people, these disciples that he has. Everything is awesome, as the song goes, when you're part of a team. And if you've watched the Lego movie, you know what I'm talking about. But now they come down from the mountaintop, they go back to Capernaum, and the crowds once again are gathering, and they're surrounding the house of Peter and his brother. It's so busy that Jesus and his disciples don't seem to be able to eat And the first accusation arises out of this because his family hears about what's going on in Capernaum and they arrive from Nazareth. The first accusation is, he's out of his mind. He's deranged. He's psychotic. There's something profoundly wrong with Jesus according to his family. His family. If we go back to our John Carpenter film, what we find is this man uh, tries to t- tell other people of what he sees when he has the glasses on, and everyone thinks he's crazy. And so, what he tries to do, and I think there's a picture of him and a friend, uh, he finally, after a fight, gets his friend to wear the glasses. And so now that his friend can see what he sees and realizes he's not completely crazy. <laughs> shall we say. People, even his own family, thinks Jesus is crazy. That he's out of his mind. That he's not himself. That that the Jesus who left Nazareth is not the Jesus that is working in Capernaum. He's not working. He's a rabbi. And all these people are going and he's not taking care of himself. Something from their perspective seemed to be wrong. And so they showed up in order to take charge of him, to take custody of him, to bring him home before this gets even more out of hand. They live in an honor culture. And so when you live in an honor culture, what you do reflects profoundly upon your family. I mean, we, we still have some remnant of that today, uh, but it's more profound in an honor culture. It's, it's similar in Japan today and, and in China and other honor cultures that, that currently exist. They feel shame because they think their son or their brother is Crazy. He is bringing dishonor not only to himself, but also to them and so forth. That is why they have shown up to take charge or custody of him and end all of this craziness. But they're not the only ones who show up in Capernaum because we see that scribes have arrived from Jerusalem... And that sounds a little cryptic, and that's why I had Deuteronomy 13 read to you today, because what's likely going on is that they have arrived to see if Capernaum is what they would call a seduced city. Whether this rabbi Jesus has seduced this city and is leading them to worship false gods, and if so, to try and destroy Jesus and the city. There's conflict, great conflict that is here, spiritual conflict that is here, that is hinted at. And their assessment of what's going on is that he is possessed by Beelzebub, which is only used in these texts. But we see from the the parallel statement later on, by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. They think that he is possessed by Satan and that it is because of this satanic power that he has uh, that he is casting uh, casting out or exercising these demons. Now, Many people thought at that time that those who were insane were thought to be demon-possessed. Okay, And so there's a sense in which uh, these two accusations overlap with one another, but this second accusation goes even farther because they're accusing Jesus not just of being crazy, not simply of being possessed by a demon, uh, but actually... Sorcery. And I have a few quotes there uh, for you uh, from the Sanhedrin accounts, as well as other accounts. When Jesus was condemned by the Sanhedrin, one of the charges they listed was sorcery. And so he was hung on the tree as a result of his sorcery by which he led people astray. We see this reflected in John 10, verse 20. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? And so deranged and demon-possessed, these things were said about Jesus in order to discredit Jesus and his ministry. But it's not just about Jesus. Who else were casting out demons? Remember that the apostles have been given authority to cast out demons. And because they are joined with Jesus as his disciples, these these charges, these accusations also apply to them. They too must be deranged. They too must be demon-possessed. And so are those who listen so are those who believe what this deranged, demon-possessed band of men teach them. Not only are they discrediting Jesus, but they're seeking to discredit everybody who follows after Jesus. And that wasn't just something that happened there in in, uh, Galilee, but If we pay attention to what was going on in Rome, we see similar charges uh, that would arise in Rome when people converted. We see, for instance, this is not Rome, but this is Festus. When Paul is before Festus, he says, um, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. You're deranged. You've lost it. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. You're too smart for your own good, Paul. Festus is saying. We see Paul referring to something similar in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, responding in a sense to the charges made by the super apostles. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. He's speaking a little with some irony there. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. And so um, Paul is being honest, in a sense, uh, that people considered him and his team to be fools. They considered them to be weak. They considered them to be in disrepute. First Peter chapter four, Peter is writing to believers, presumably in Asia. As it says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of, dis- of debauchery, and they malign you. And so, not just the apostles, but we see in 1 Peter 4, that converts, because they challenged the status quo of the kingdom of darkness, they were discredited, they were maligned, because now they didn't fit in. In that time and in that place, perversion was not um, the exception. Perversion was the rule. Perversion was commonplace. Perverts uh, were not outliers. And when Christians converted and stopped engaging in the perversions of their culture, they were often maligned because they did not join in anymore because they followed a new master. Now, let's think about this a little more deeply. Let's think about this in light of Romans 1. The world has exchanged the truth for a lie. And because they have exchanged the truth for a lie, they blindly serve Satan, and as it talks about in Ephesians 2, Um, and four, they have darkened reasoning. And so their evaluation of these Christian converts is colored by their darkened understanding, by the futility of their thinking, as Paul says in Romans 1. In other words, they're not making a wise evaluation uh, of the behavior of the Christians, and so they are being dismissive, And destructive towards them. And that is the same thing that was going on with the scribes. As they make this assessment of Jesus, uh, that he is demon-possessed, they're doing this out of the futile, dark thinking of people who are in bondage to Satan, even though they don't realize it. They are like the average person in the movie They Live who doesn't realize the presence of the aliens and the the, um, subliminal messages uh, that are getting them to be obedient to their alien overlords. Their animosity to Jesus and the kingdom as a result of their sinfulness reveals itself in these accusations and the reality of the unseen reality. Here's part of what it is. Satan doesn't care if you're a drug addict or a really moral person, as long as you aren't clinging to Jesus. So don't think it's just the really bad and messed up people that are under bondage to Satan. Satan. Because he is happy to use moralism, too. He's happy to have a a moralism that is separated from faith in Jesus Christ. Or looks to a fake Jesus Christ. As I was uh, talking with one of our new neighbors who who stopped in because they thought that the election was happening in Pima County. They didn't realize it it was just the, uh, the city limits. New to this part of town was coming from uh, Green Valley. Asked me about it. Said, well, one of the things about this part of town um, is that it's fairly moral because there's a lot of Mormons. They're very moral people, but their morality is not one that is rooted in Jesus, the eternal Son of God and Savior of sinners. And so Satan is happy that they're Mormons because they're not Christians. Doesn't matter whether you're an immoral person or a moral person outside of Jesus Christ you are serving the evil one. We see in 2 Corinthians 4 in their case the god of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. That's it. Do you believe that? Do you believe that He blinds them so they can't see the truth about who Jesus is? Because Scripture wants you to believe this because it's true. He blinds them, Paul says, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. He'll present a fake Jesus to them if that's what it takes to keep them from the real Jesus. But that's what he does. And so, Jesus and his disciples will be discredited as deranged and demon-possessed. Let's move to Jesus' response in verses 23 through 27. Uh, Jesus did not shrink back from this. He did not shrink back from his critics. We're going to look more at his, his response to his family uh, next week. Um, but again, his critics are trying to ostracize him. And eventually, they did ostracize him. As we see in Hebrews, he was slain outside of the city. And so there's a call to join Jesus outside of the city. But they want to make Jesus an outsider, a non person. Jesus exposes the, lo- the lousy logic that's at work in their accusations against him, the logic that comes from the futility of their thinking of the darkened understanding that they have. He asks, well, in a series of parables or figures of speech, they're not necessarily what we think of as parables, stories, but figures of speech, how can Satan cast out Satan? This is not about, um, well, this is about ability. How does Satan have the ability to cast himself out? is essentially what Jesus is getting at here. In other words, what you, the scribes, are saying is nonsensical. It makes no sense that he would cast himself out out of a person, that he would set someone in bondage to him free. Why would Satan want to do that, much less how could he do that? Satan was alive and well, but Jesus is doing what the scribes and the Pharisees can't do. He is casting Satan or demons out of people. Jesus continues, if a kingdom or house is divided against itself, that kingdom or house cannot stand. Jesus uses nearly identical sentences to emphasize what he's getting at here. No kingdom, no dynasty at war with itself can stand long. And they were familiar with this. The Roman audience that received this gospel They'd seen civil wars before and what happens is someone has to win or everything falls apart. And Jesus is reminding the scribes that what you are describing is a civil war and that house, that dynasty, that power, that authority cannot last for long. Jesus cannot be possessed by Satan. He cannot be working with Satan. He cannot be working for Satan because, in fact, he is seeking to destroy the devil and his works. What's interesting is that Mark leaves off an incredible sentence that Matthew contains. And I think that's partially because Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, uh, writes to people who would get the reference, whereas Mark is writing to a largely Gentile Roman audience who would not get the reference. Uh, But Matthew writes for us, If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then this kingdom of God has come upon you. One of the things that's interesting there, is, well, is that, it, it's interpreted, it should be the finger of God. If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And what Jesus is referring back to is Moses before Pharaoh and the magicians In Exodus chapter 8. Because when the magicians of Pharaoh could not repeat the miracles of Moses, they said to him, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And so what Matthew sets up that Mark overlooks because of his audience is that Jesus is the greater Moses of the greater Exodus before the magicians of the greater Pharaoh. The scribes are like the magicians. They're, they're serving Satan, though they don't realize it. But Jesus, who's greater than Moses and is about to not just have a physical exodus, but a spiritual exodus from the kingdom of darkness, is there revealing to them that the Spirit of God has arrived. That Jesus, who has been endued by the Holy Spirit at His baptism, remember from chapter 1, the Spirit dwelt and remained upon Him, that Jesus is doing this in the power of the Holy Spirit, not only His own power, He's the champion of God's people. And he's setting God's people free and accomplishing great victory, just as Moses accomplished great victory over Pharaoh. But Jesus here in Mark is also portrayed as the stronger man who entered the strong man's house in order to plunder it. I mean, he through the power of the spirit is stronger than the evil one and that is why he's able to bind him and plunder his home. Jesus is stronger than Satan. His kingdom, the kingdom of light is greater than the kingdom of darkness. And we have to remember this. And we have to remember that this is the conflict that matters. We're all in conflicts, right? We're surrounded by conflicts, and we participate in conflicts of all sorts. If there's anyone here who's not in a conflict, uh, then uh, praise God. <laughs> you are a rare beast, to say the least. But we're, we're part of conflicts all the time, uh, Most of us follow politics, and so uh, there is a conflict that emerges. As uh, someone at the uh, Gospel Coalition said this week at at our lunch, uh, that both parties' goal is to save America. They just have different plans as to how to save it and what to save it from. But there's a conflict that's there. Don't settle for that conflict. There's conflicts between the sexes. Conflicts, thanks to Marx, between the classes. There's conflict between the races, skin colors. Conflicts everywhere you turn. Those conflicts are just symptomatic of the greater conflict that exists. Don't lose sight of the greater conflict that exists. the conflict between Jesus and the kingdom of darkness. And remember that our goal is to see people set free from the kingdom of darkness because they're plunder of the conquering King Jesus who sets people free from the power of Satan. We see that in Colossians chapter 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And so, when we think about salvation, we cannot lose sight of the forgiveness of sin that is basic to it, but that's not all that it is. It's also being delivered from the domain of darkness, being delivered from the kingdom of darkness. Being delivered from slavery to the evil one, and brought into obedience of the great king, the kind king, the loving king, who has your interests in mind, not just his own. And so what Jesus and his disciples are here, when they're casting out demons, what they're doing is an intrusion of this great work of salvation that would eventually be accomplished by defeating Satan on the cross and his death. And then in his resurrection. And so we see that Jesus and his disciples, who who are heralds of this kingdom, Jesus and his disciples plunder Satan by the power of the Spirit. We should see that if I was clear enough. Let's move to Jesus' warning in verses 28 and 30. Jesus doesn't take the accusation of the scribes lightly. What they're doing is they're bearing false witness. Jesus doesn't say that explicitly, but that's really what he's going to get at. But Jesus begins by offering some hope. There's a promise here. All, and I would say kinds, of sins will be forgiven the children of men. In other words, Jesus in his earthly ministry offers forgiveness freely. He says, even the blasphemies that they blaspheme can be forgiven the things, uh, the reproaches they say about Jesus himself, the accusations that are made against Jesus himself can be forgiven. Jesus seemed like an ordinary man. There was no halo upon his head like we have in some of the ancient art. There was no glow that emanated from Jesus. They had no way of knowing that he was the Son of God just by looking at him. And they evaluated him as just a man. And unfortunately, they made a false evaluation. But nonetheless, they were railing against Jesus. They had embraced the lie. What Jesus is getting at is that people can revile Jesus. They can speak against Jesus himself. They can say he's deranged. And we'll get back to that again, as I said, next week when we talk about his family. Okay. But I want us to dwell on this for a second. This week a dictator died. How many of you knew that? Robert Mugabe, who terrorized Zimbabwe, for decades, died. As far as I know, um, in terms of what his sins were, and they were many, had he cried out to Jesus, had he trusted in Jesus and turned away from those sins, he would be forgiven. Even a man who stole and oppressed an entire nation could be forgiven of the greatness of his sin. That is the promise that Jesus kind of lays out here for folks. And so as you think about your own life, and and your sins and the things that you have done, as well as the things you were supposed to do and didn't do, remember, there's also sins of omission. As you think about that, Christ is sufficient. There is a fullness of forgiveness that is offered by faith. That's all we have to receive this forgiveness is faith in Jesus Christ. And it covers not just the tiny sins we might commit, but the big sins that we commit. It's not just for the, the little white lies, but for those who have had an abortion or, or performed an abortion. Those things can be, all of those things in that spectrum can be forgiven. There's mercy that is offered in Christ. But Jesus does also offer a warning. He says, Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. They remain guilty. They remain in condemnation. And understanding this sentence is incredibly important. <clears throat> and there are many who, who are otherwise sound who I think in many ways uh, mess up this sentence. What we see the scribes doing here is attributing the Holy Spirit's work to Satan, the prince of darkness. And so they've gone beyond reviling Jesus to reviling the Holy Spirit. They're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Their opposition to Jesus is what leads them to defame the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's a difference here that Jesus seems to lay out. That he can take what they say against him, but he won't take what they say against the Holy Spirit. Some have said that uh, this is talking about resisting the work of the Spirit in their own lives and resisting the Gospel. and That really doesn't seem to fit the context of this passage and the words that Jesus says, Robert Mugabe is is not in hell because he committed the unpardonable sin of resisting the the work of the Spirit. His sin is not pardoned because he didn't believe, he did not entrust himself to Christ and the sufficiency of Christ's work. But that's just unpardoned sin as opposed to. Unpardonable sin. Okay? Any sin that is unpardoned results in condemnation. But what Jesus is talking about here is a sin that is not pardonable, that he refuses to pardon. And that sin is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What Jesus is saying is, while you condemn me, and while you say that I'm operating under the power of an evil, unclean spirit, I'm actually operating under the power of the Holy Spirit, God himself, I'm not the one who is going to be condemned. I'm not the one who's going to face judgment, he says. You are. They, not Jesus, were the ones who were really influenced by Satan. If we go back to John 8, we were, we we're reminded of this. He tells the scribes and the Pharisees, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And so Jesus makes the claim and therefore, because it's Jesus, it's true that they were of the evil one. And the fact that they wanted to murder Jesus and lie about him Reveals that very thing. And therefore they, not Jesus, are the ones who are going to face judgment. And so we see that Jesus condemns those who condemn the Spirit's work and salvation. So, if we could sum this up, kingdoms in conflict result and false accusations and condemnation. That's sort of not a positive summary, but that's a lot of what's going on here. And the weight of it should be felt by us. As, as heralds of the kingdom, we're entrusted with a weighty responsibility of making this Jesus known in a hostile environment not in a um, greenhouse sort of environment. In the movie They Live, most people didn't realize that they had been occupied by aliens who had taken over the planet. In the same way, or a similar way, most people don't realize that the prince of the power of the air controls them, blinds them, and makes them slaves to sin. Those who are set free by Jesus are often maligned and reviled, just like Jesus was maligned and reviled. But here's the good news, is that Jesus continues to set people free from the power of Satan in a vast spiritual exodus that continues to this day. Being heralds of the kingdom means participating in that exodus, and by being reviled by the kingdom of darkness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that Jesus didn't run from shame, that Jesus didn't run from dishonor, but for the joy that was before him, he thought little of them. We thought little of the cross and its shame and dishonor. And we thank you that Jesus came to rescue people. And he's doing it even to today. 2000 years later, still rescuing people from the domain of darkness. And so we thank you for that. Father, as we think of of this new neighborhood and we think of our, our own neighbors and we think about our own family members and others, help us to be heralds of the kingdom. To be clear and honest about the real spiritual conflict that exists. Help us to not get as wrapped up in the other conflicts. But to really focus on that one. Because that's the one that lasts forever. All the rest are temporary. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.